0: All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing, and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. I almost stumbled over my name there. How did I do that? Well, perhaps (laughs) it's because I'm getting confused with our topic for today, which I'll jump into in just a second. Uh, But as always, um, this is Josh Patterson. Maybe I've already said that. So if I have, forgive me. But I am excited today. We have I have a fun guest. I really, really enjoyed their book a lot. I'm excited to dive in. Uh, But I just wanted to ask you guys before we jump in, uh, if you haven't liked or subscribed to the podcast yet or maybe left like a nice little review or something like that, I'd really appreciate it if you would do that. And also, I think today's topic is one that will resonate with a lot of people. So maybe as you're listening, a friend or a coworker or a parent or someone else, (laughs) your dog comes to mind, and you would like to share it with them. So if you would go ahead and pass it along, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, But now that all that throat clearing is out of the way, uh, I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Professor Matthew S. Lopresti, who has a new book out called Religious Pluralism Toward a Comparative Metaphysics of Religion. Professor Lopresti, how are we doing today?
1: Great, Josh. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, most most definitely. I'm uh, like I said, I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited for our conversation. Um, and I guess just before we jump in to your work, for listeners who might not be familiar with yourself, um, could you just give us a little bit of background information? You know, who are you, and and what kind of things do you find yourself doing?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I teach philosophy in Hawaii, where I earned my PhD in comparative philosophy at the University of Hawaii. I came out here uh, because I wanted to specialize in comparative thought. So I I ended up in the South Asian tradition. In particular, I studied Sanskrit, studied and taught in India, uh, whereas some of my other colleagues were were, uh, focusing on China and Japan. I got a really well-rounded comparative philosophical education. I was classically trained in the Western tradition for my master's in the mainland and then uh, headed out here and uh, ended up getting a job staying out here. Um, this book was actually written uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, but I got involved in politics and I was in politics in the state legislature out here for, for several terms and uh, finally came back around to publishing the book when the publisher reached out to me and said that they had heard about it and wanted to to publish it.
0: Nice. Yeah, right on. What so what was your uh what was the draw to politics for you?
1: Well, I mean, part of it was becoming a father, but a, a large part of it was being a philosopher. I've always had the notion that philosophy without action is really uh, meaningless. The whole point in my mind of studying and and living a life of the mind is to make a better world. And uh, when when I felt a calling to get engaged in local politics, I I I didn't pass that up. I had to to set aside my academic career and 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 uh mix it up.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I, I I agree with you. I think um at least I know for myself, I have this kind of tendency to uh get stuck in my head and just want to like live in my mind and play with ideas. Uh, but ultimately, as you were saying, those ideas don't really mean anything. Um mm-hmm. I'm not applying them or, or trying to, to make the world a better place, like you're saying. So I, I appreciate that. That's pretty cool. Um, when, so I guess I, maybe a question that I think is rather important is why, so why is something like religious pluralism important to you? Why is that something that you felt drawn to write about?
1: Well, Josh, it's, it's goes along the same sort of mentality that I had for having Philosophical ideas, teaching about justice and ethics, and then having to have an opportunity to apply that in the real world through politics. I really see the religious pluralism question as a practical application of metaphysics, as a practical application of uh, learning about interreligious dialogue and theology. Um, ever since I was a little boy, I began the book actually telling the story. Uh, ever since I was a little boy, I was raised Catholic and, and went to you know Sunday school, and questions were raised about. Um, well, if nobody's ever been ex- exposed to the gospel before, then uh, the, the suggestion by the nuns and the priests was that they would face eternal damnation. And even as a, as a kid, that didn't make any sense to me. And I would challenge that. And I th- they thought I was just being trouble, I think. But I was sincere in my concerns. And it's actually part of what led me to study philosophy as an adult um, and, and explore this topic. So for me, it's a very personal uh, topic that I wanted to try to tackle. With all the educational uh, knowledge that I gained, not just from the Western tradition, but I explored other traditions and felt that I had arrived at um, a suitable answer.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I think, you know, speaking, I think a lot of our my listeners will kind of come to religious pluralism for similar reasons. A lot of people who listen to the show have dealt with some kind of like church hurt maybe, or have experienced something like deconstruction is kind of a popular, you know, word to call it today. And so religious, you know, what do you do when <laughs> you grow up in a tradition that tells you something like you were saying, oh, if they don't, you know, believe in Jesus or somehow appropriate Christ to themselves, whatever, um, that now they just go to hell forever. And then you go to school and you meet your Muslim neighbor, or your jewish neighbor or your you know whatever uh neighbor and you're like wow he's a really good person a lot better person yep. than i am <laughs> what do we do with that and so i think um that's that's exciting to me and also i think the i don't know for me there's kind of this i don't know i have a feeling i guess that if if religious pluralism or at least um interfaith dialogue isn't taken seriously, i don't see the world becoming a better place. um because of the kind of violence that gets perpetuated between, you know, religious groups or something like that. and so i think the task of a genuine religious pluralism is really important for something like peace
1: <laughs> and
0: a better world. yeah.
1: So. i think that's absolutely right, josh. and and it the, the the lessons we can learn from interreligious dialogue actually have practical applications and uh, political dialogue, um dialogue between conflict groups, uh so many different um applications of the similar strategies that you find and that I talk about in the last chapter in my book about what are the what are the basic things we need to have uh, what I call a genuine religious dialogue and not just talking past one another, and not just trying to convert one another. Uh so I, I do think there's many practical applications.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, let's start where, where you do in the book. You kind of make this distinction between like pluralism and pluralistic, uh, hmm. theologies or, you know, philosophies, etc. And so I'm, I'm curious what, what, like, how do you see that distinction and why do you think that distinction is, uh, important to take note of?
1: I, I think it's a great place to start, and it's important to take note of because uh, I, I want to read a passage briefly that inspired me when I was reading a, a book by uh, John Cobb Jr. and David Ray Griffin. They're talking about deep religious pluralism, and and in that book, they, they articulate both the negative and a positive affirmation, um, and, and the negative affirmation was the notion that um, and I'll, I'll just I'll just read it if you don't mind. Uh, this is uh, David Griffin. The negative affirmation is the rejection of religious absolutism, um, that it alone is divinely inspired, that it has been divinely established as the only legitimate religion intended to replace all others. And then the positive affirmation, which goes beyond this negative one, is the acceptance of the idea that there are indeed religions other than one's own that provide saving truths and values to their adherents. So this is what I regard as a generic pluralistic um, affirmation, a generic pluralistic idea. It's not quite a, a pluralism because with that negative and positive affirmation, you can still end up with what I uh, and others call religious inclusivism. You can try to make room for um truths and other traditions that are, or or value in other traditions, but still I think improperly sublimate them as part of your own truth um, and that's an important distinction uh, when we're talking about a, a pluralism proper because a religious pluralism proper is going to respect traditions uh from a position of their own understanding of themselves where we don't come in and interlate force an interpretation on them to say you have value because you reflect my values. You have value in the ways that reflect the values of my tradition. Rather, um, I recognize that there is value in your tradition that may be focused on on things that mine isn't either isn't focused on at all or usually just isn't the the primary focus, but is still somewhere in there.
0: Yeah, for sure. It, it kind of reminds me, you know, like an example of inclusivism that I think will be familiar to listeners would be something like C.S. Lewis, right? In the final battle where the whole thing with Tash and, you know, it's like, oh, well, um, you like, you know, maybe you we're serving, you thought you were serving a different God, but really you were serving the right God the whole time kind of thing. <laughs> and so it it's this inclusivism, you know, like you were saying, that kind of um Almost becomes reduct- reductionistic because it's still okay. So like the God that I believe in is the right one, and even though it sounds like you don't think you're worshiping this God, you secretly are. And so, it, like I think what you're trying to offer and convey is rather okay. What's it a, a true pluralism, a deep religious pluralism that's not just reductionistic? That's not just some kind of. I know relativism is something that you you seek to avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just like, okay, well now everything is just correct and blah, 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 but rather how can we see the inherent truth and value in all of these traditions and hold them as a plurality of truths, not just suck them under one kind of, you know, it's obviously the Christian God or the Muslim, you know, whatever is that, is that kind of right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Josh. I mean, it- with with um, the the slight logical exception that it's not just making room that they're all somehow true because that runs into a dangerous relativism, but rather leaves open the possibility that there's a plurality of truths or a plurality of what I like to call authentic traditions, uh, trying to to uh, avoid. Uh, philosophers uh, get, get picky, of course, with the word true, uh, and, and it's difficult to talk about a tradition as true. So I, I, I like to think of it as authentic, as an authentic soteriological path, a path of salvation, authentic practices, authentic um, relationships between, say, the self and whatever the religious ultimate is in that tradition. Uh, well, wh- One thing that I think is really helpful, or I hope is really helpful for readers in the first chapter, is I provide several um, kind of mental maps. Um, taxonomies, if you will, of responses to religious diversity, um, on pages four and five. I know you have the book; those um, those those diagrams that help you to visualize how the relationship works between exclusivism, inclusivism, pluralism, relativism, what what some of their shared and uh, shared shared um, characteristics are, and where major differences lie. So. Like you mentioned, an inclusivism uh, that that is really a form of religious and one of the things that I do in the book later on when I examine uh, South Asian uh, religious traditions is I I take the tradition for the Western reader to see that, you know, this inclusivist tendency is not unique to the Abrahamic traditions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. the the quote unquote Hindu tradition or the Brahmanical tradition is often regarded as uh, super pluralistic and really open in a way that that I think uh, a deeper reading uh, demonstrates that it's it too has absolutist tendencies. Um, there's a story I, I, I share in there in the 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 Vaishnavite tradition where they worship Vishnu. <laughs> there's the story about how to make sense of the Buddha. And the Buddha is regarded as one of the incarnations of Vishnu. And they talk about, well, the reason he's so convincing is because it was really Vishnu who came here to test us with the wrong teachings and kind of trick. Uh, it was really meant to trick the demons away from the Vedas to, to take away the sacred armor of the Veda so they can be defeated. Uh, now, certainly that's an inclusivism uh, from the Brahmanical perspective. and And one of the tests for inclusivism is, would the tradition you're talking about agree with that narrative? And the clear answer is the Buddhists would say, well, no, that's not all what our tradition is about. You might, as a, as a as a Hindu or as a Brahmanical tradition, you might maybe feel better about us. You might be more tolerant of us or something like that. But it doesn't mean you really see us for what and who we are. Uh, I think that's a real great kind of narrative measure for inclusivism and the difference between that and um Genuinely taking somebody's tradition and trying to 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 not necessarily embrace it, but understand it from their perspective.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's good, and I I like the word you use there, tolerance, as well, because you. I mean, I remember in your book you you mentioned that you know even though tolerance is kind of maybe like a nice ideal, like it's it's nice to respect other people's traditions, that a tolerance is still not a form of of pluralism. Mm-hmm. because it's it's still kind of this uh, absolutism uh, like you're saying um which was really interesting and i i don't know i i like i liked how that chapter kind of stretched me because it did um push me to think or at least attempt to think within the different religious traditions rather than just okay here's the tradition i come from now let me see how these other traditions maybe are saying the same thing or like, you know, secretly like sneaking in their ideas or something like that. And, but rather to, to um, see them as, as unique uh, without kind of re- re- um, reducing it to some kind of like relativism. So I think that was a really helpful um, overall Have chapter for myself.
1: You know, uh, one, one of the, initials responses i've gotten from a reader who he's not an academic but he's he's um just like i think many of your listeners very curious about some of these I- ideals um and he's not an ac- he's like i said he's not an academic or theologian but he he's always exploring to try to understand different traditions and and he sees value in them um and he was he was about halfway through the book and i i met up with him uh he, he's in cub scouts along with me and my we were cub scouts for our kids we were talking and he said you know and what's frustrating me is um, what is your view specifically with regard to religions? And I said, ah, uh, you know, of, of course, that's an actual question that you would have. But I intentionally I strive in the book to not take a position with regard to this religion, that religion, uh, because, what, first of all, once you do that, um, I think you're isolating yourself from um, a large swath of potential people who might find value in your book, there's that, but that's not the only reason. What I'm trying to do is provide a a mechanism for articulating a way that multiple traditions can simultaneously obtain without saying this one, that one, not that one, right? So that I provide, and this is what I try to do as a professor for my students is I want to provide people the tools to come to their own conclusions, not lead them by the nose in some way uh, to my conclusions. So, so that's what I really strive to do. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think you did a nice job of that in the book. Um, I I appreciated that aspect because I think too, that even is almost like a, in a weird way, like an object lesson, right? If you're talking about something like pluralism and then you are trying to draw people or like by the nose, like you were saying into like, well, your, your conclusion, your perspective, <laughs> um, then that's like doesn't really seem like the kind of deep pluralism you're talking about so I, I think that's really cool i i appreciate that <laughs> exactly.
1: i i yeah. it took a, it took a lot of work to, to keep it um neutral like that um, mm. i'm glad it comes across that way
0: yeah i i think so um all right so we have like somewhat of a basic understanding now of we're looking for something that is a true pluralism that respects different traditions on their own terms, for what they are. But people, you know, maybe now people are like, okay, well, that's cool. But what kind of, uh you know, basis exists for this? Or if we're going to use like philosophical language, is there some kind of ontological basis for a deep religious pluralism, <laughs> which is very convenient, because that's the second chapter of your book. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, there's there's a I, I don't know this. So this chapter was really for me, because uh, I so I admittedly, I hadn't done too much with Cobb and Griffin, although I'm familiar with their work on the kind of pluralism topic. Um, I've seen it, you know, offhanded mentioned in like, you know, random chapters or something like that in books that I've read. But I wasn't super familiar yet with this kind of the a plurality of ultimates that gives you a basis mm-hmm. for like a deep religious pluralism. And so, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's where I want to go. Like, let's, uh, let's get uncomfortable and talk about this plurality of ultimates. What's, what's that all about? Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and this is really the the key, uh, I think for developing any theology of world religions, um, and, and and it's important that I keep it in the plural like that, because this, I think, is just a theology of world religions. I think there's totally possible to have a multiplicity of these um, as well. But what has inspired me to write this was the work of Cobb and Griffin, where they talk about from a, a Whiteheadian perspective, Alfred North Whitehead um, I'm not sure how familiar your, your readers are with with him or his work, but he's what's called a process philosopher, a process thinker. And by his own admission, he says that much of his work is perhaps more resembling, uh, from his nation's understanding, uh, a Chinese or, or Indian kind of metaphysical position and looking at things. And what I think he means by that, and at least how I understand what he means by process thinking... Is, is looking at the world uh, and trying to make meta- metaphysics, metaphysical sense of it in terms of its uh, flux and fluidity rather than its stasis and, and conc- conc- uh, concreteness. Um, and that might sound really abstract to your readers, but I'll, I'll give you an example, like a simple example of work. So in the West, um, the metaphysics has been developed, of course, and shaped by our language. We, in in Western languages, uh, we have noun-based languages where uh, nouns are the the subjects and the objects, and the relationship is verbs and and spatiality and temporality. Um, But the real preeminent, real stuff is stuff, things. Well, that's not the case in other traditions. If you think about um, classical Chinese, for example, whereas in English, I might say the green chair is here now, a literal translation in other languages would be so something like greening, sharing, hearing, now everything's a verb, everything re- re- exists relationally, what makes it a chair, you put your butt in it, and it's a chair, uh, if you stand on it, it's a stool, now it's a, st- a stooling, greening, hearing, now, right, well, what does this have to do with metaphysics, it has everything to do with it, because the way we envision reality, and say what's fundamentally, ultimately real, um, is, is shaped by our language, so when Whitehead um, establishes a Western process metaphysics that redefines God, that redefines what can or how can we make sense of a personal deity in this new process way of thinking. And for me personally, it's brought me back to um, to Christianity and my belief in God in a way that I, I couldn't make sense of um, for the longest time as a student of philosophy and, and philosophy of religion in particular that it just all fell apart under under careful scrutiny, in my opinion. And until I discovered process theology, it could finally make sense again because it redefines omniscience and uh, omnipotence and, and all these aspects. Well, that's the Western tradition. But it also helps to allow for what, say, in the Taoist tradition, the Tao is the religious ultimate. And in the, in the Hindu tradition, um, and I'm generalizing, there's the Brahman as is, is the ultimate ground of all being. Uh, for many of the the classical traditions. And a process metaphysics itself has a plurality of religious ultimates. So it's a non-religious inspired um, metaphysics that talks about reality, I think, in a way that's far more accurate and close to what we do, what we think we understand about contemporary physics and theoretical physics. And it also happens to... Enable a narrative where multiple religious ultimates can coexist without contradiction. You can have an undifferentiated absolute like Brahman or Tao. You can have a, a differentiated absolute, a personal absolute like deity. You can have a multiplicity of uh, what, what they call actual occasions um, that, that would resonate with other religious traditions and narratives. Um, so chapter three, two is where I bring this up. But three, one of the best compliments I've gotten in the book, actually, is that um the the chapter three that explores the the and and makes sense of process thought for non-specialists is one of the best ones that a, a colleague of mine had read. And that was a great honor to hear that, um because that's my goal is to try to reach not just academics, but people who aren't academics and theologians to give them to arm them with the theoretical foundation to push back against the claim that they're relativists. If they think this, that they've abandoned reason, if they think this stuff, because that's not true. You just need to change your metaphysics and it's possible.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. I, I actually, I really loved that, that chapter. I, uh, myself am a process relational thinker. Um, I started, you know, my introduction was uh, via the work of Tom Ord, uh, who I know prefers to use the phrase "open and relational," and maybe mm. will not publicly admit that he's a process thinker. But Tom, you're yes, all right. Enough said, Tom. Yeah, you, you get I the idea. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it it's um, the the metaphysical thing was really helpful for me. Just. Because I, I noticed, and this is something that a buddy of mine, Trip Fuller, uh, helped point out is that a lot of times when we're doing something like theology, we're asking questions that exist within different registers. So mm. Trip points to like a historical register, and this specifically is coming from like some Christology stuff he was doing, but I think it more broadly applies. Mm. You have like a historical register, an existential register, and a metaphysical register. And for me, a lot of the kind of questions, I found myself asking uh, when I was, you know, like deconstructing my faith, so to speak, um, were these big metaphysical questions. And I kind of, I had some intuitions Mm -hmm. that, you know, were pointing me in a certain direction, but the metaphysics that I had been handed, it didn't work, right? Like, like, basically, I was operating out of some kind of like dualism. Um, And so what process Thinking helped me do was provide a better metaphysics that then opened me up to being able to look at things in a totally different way, uh, which is really helpful. And that's kind of how I I came to process thinking. Um, and I mean, I'm still yeah, I'm still that... learning, but
1: <laughs> we have, we have, if, we're, if we're honest, we're all all still learning, and we should always be learning through the point till we die. But I, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, many uh, listeners may be more familiar with the, the term relational theology, open theology, um, process theology is is, is another uh, term and an expression that I would say it's it's the same same thing. Um, academics can argue about that outside of this uh, venue. Um, but I, I one thing we've mentioned a few times is relativism. But I did I haven't yet articulated how or why this isn't relativist right as my your listeners m- might be uh, saying hey what what about this right and they're right they should be asking that question and and i i offer a very simple venn diagram on on the first chapter as well to talk about this that leads into the the chapter talking about the the various religious ultimates from the metaphysical perspective and it's very simple you have um one one of the circles of the venn diagram says uh, respect differences between traditions. And so this is, goes back to your first question about pluralistic theologies, not pluralism, but simply pluralistic. They have this. And this is page twelve. If you're looking in, in the book, um, so respecting these differences between traditions, and relativists do that. They they could respect the tradition, and and I think wrongly conclude they're all true, or they're 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 all equally true, or somehow like that. And they're respecting uh, the differences by by in a sense, authenticating, saying thumbs up, right? But then the other circle says, well, you have to abide by the law of non-contradiction. Um, among the basic, three basic laws of logic, uh, you know, there's this thing where you you have to abide by the law of non-contradiction. And there is overlap between abiding by the law of non-contradiction and respecting differences between religious traditions, and that's where pluralism lies, and what enables it to do that is that metaphysics is—is is this metaphysics that I think works and makes sense and um, and, and and offers a um, useful if not accurate map of of reality, and also is able to offer that map of understanding various world religious traditions in a way that says, "Hey, these actually can make sense together at the same time." without contradicting each other. Here's how. Um, now, what it's never going to do and what I'm not interested in doing um, and will be, I think, an impossible task anyways, is trying to uh, find a way to to get the dogmas to make sense together. The, the various dogmatic interpretations of, of um, biblical literature or Hindu literature or, or Taoist literature, um, you know, there's lots of denominations their own particular peculiar interpretation of their tradition and what it means for salvation to make sense in their narrative. I'm not interested in making those make sense together. Um that that's that's a a role, an important role for ecumenical uh thinkers and then and in religious dialogue, but I'm much more interested in the deep meta theology, the deep metaphysics, the 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 ground whereby we can begin to say, hey, this actually might all make sense together. Um, So
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm with you. I mean, that's <laughs> the metaphysical question is what pushed me to the kind of processy stuff. But I'm curious, like for you, what it, what is it about a process relational metaphysics or a Whiteheadian, if you're more comfortable with that language, um, mm. metaphysics, what is it about it that you think is unique that opens us up to embracing something more like a deep religious
1: pluralism? Hmm. Hmm. That's a great question. What it makes it unique in, in a sense, well, so I do spend, as we talked before this, uh, I do spend a fair amount of time looking at alternative attempts to do pluralism from, so, so John Hay, right, and he comes from this, from a Kantian perspective, and I, I, um, many scholars have pointed out that that's not really pluralism, and, and here's problems with it and everything. So I, I work through all of that, and um, then I get to the process or the Whitehead open relational uh, philosophy. And what, again, has made it make sense for me is – well, I'll, I'll refer to the the title of, of Griffin's Griffin, – David R. Griffin had the book um, – uh, religion without supernaturalism was that the title right religion without supernaturalism whereby you can have this tangible functional concept of deity without supernatural stuff that i think a more modern or contemporary mind has to kind of bracket and set aside as like yeah this sounds magic and Maybe you know mythical, and maybe made up, and 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 we 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 have these gaps in our theological explanations because the metaphysics can't explain um how God can be what we might call all knowing, how God can be what we might call powerful, and so Whitehead in his in a, in his book Process and Reality, there's the one of the books at the end, I think it's called God and or one of the chapters in the end is called God and the World, and he talks about well. Actually, you know, deity or God um, is is he's 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 not all knowing in the sense that he knows everything all the time that that can't possibly make sense because there's a horizon even to God's knowledge. Uh, he might have a really good idea of where things are going. Um, certainly he does, but um, it doesn't mean he absolutely knows if, if you study philosophy, you know. Philosophers love to argue about well, what do we mean by knowledge, and you know, it's a really high bar to meet knowledge. And if we if we take that seriously and apply it even to deity, um, then we have to to redefine what do we mean exactly by God knowing all things. What do we mean exactly by the the power of deity to influence this world? Um, and so, process philosophy has this role for God and has this role for what he calls creativity. That they work together, they work in tandem to bring about um, a future where God works as, as a divine lure and lures us towards goodness, lures us towards uh, some some shared creative goal that we we can have with with Him, and 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 that allows for personal relationships as well. It allows, and I write about this in, in the book as well. Uh, it allows for a, a worshipfulness to a deity like this that that is redefined in such a radical way. I think for some traditional Christians that it seems really uh, unnervingly different. Uh, but I think to, to philosophers, it, it, it's, it's um, comfortingly sensible. <laughs> I don't know if that's just making those words up as, as I go, but uh, it, it makes it possible for me to say, I can believe in that, that can make sense. Um, so and that was just from my personal you know, showing my cards a bit, I was raised Christian, uh, raised Catholic, and um, said, "Okay, I can actually go back to this and 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 hold my head up high as a philosopher and my and my heart and and say I, I love God and have this personal relationship with God." That's deeply spiritually important important to me. But as a scholar of comparative philosophy who spent a lifetime studying um, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition. Uh, teaching and studying Confucianism and these other uh, Taoist traditions, I was in a special position. To realize, I think, as a comparative scholar that hey, this actually can make sense for these traditions too. Western scholars have had a hunch about that, um, but they didn't have the language training. They didn't have the academic training, the the the, the rigor of of training in those traditions. To to genuinely say, actually, no, it does make sense for Taoism. Does make sense for the Hindu tradition, and that's where I think I have a unique, special role to play as a scholar who is educated in with a foot in both traditions. Um, and and that's where I think a lot of the value from uh, of my book comes comes in.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely, and it it kind of reminds me of this uh, metaphor. Again, to bring in a buddy of mine, he likes to like to use um, uh, trip full air Well, often, and I th- I'm pretty sure he's pulling this from Cobb, but he'll say that um, like we all recognize the difference between um, love and the beloved. Whereas mm-hmm. you know, like if I were to tell you a story right now about my wife Noelle and how wonderful she is. And how she's, you know, the love of my life, and she's great, and all these kind of things. Your response wouldn't be, okay, great. Well, can I get her phone number
1: <laughs> so that I can now <laughs>
0: talk to her? But rather, it might invoke in you a sense of a perhaps a similar relationship in your life of a beloved, right? And mm-hmm. so yeah. you're not you're not confused there between love and the beloved. Um and I think that that kind of factors into this this kind of conversation in a in a way rather nicely,
1: yeah, um, it does and to take that even to extend that further, it also wouldn't be necessarily appropriate to say that's great for you, but my wife's better and here's how she's better in these sorts of ways right uh, and and then have some sort of silly contest um in that way instead uh, we we might well, you, you articulated it very well uh, what we should take away from that. but and that, that's sometimes what people do in a religious – well, failed as religious dialogue is they, they get in a pissing contest with each other. Yeah. <laughs> right. which, which is better or which perspective is better. And um, you know, that's not productive. That's not productive. It, right. If you go into it with an open mind that I actually can learn something from you and I make myself vulnerable enough to say I don't know everything, which is strange to me still as a as a, somebody who spent my lifetime teaching and, and, and studying philosophy – that that it's the, the small act of intellectual humility just to say, I don't know everything, is so hard for people, especially sadly when it comes to religious uh thought. And um you need, I think, to make yourself vulnerable, not just before the Lord, uh, but before each other with humility and 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 show the, the dignity that, you know, I don't think you're full of shit. And I think you might have something worthwhile to share with me. And um I I respect your tradition and I want to learn from you um so pardon my french but i think it helps deliver the point
0: no absolutely and that's not the that's not even like the strongest french that has been brought on this show oh, you know what okay. i mean so <laughs> so french french is welcome I, here.
1: I won't take that as a challenge
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> well that perhaps you're a more mature person than i am um but yeah that so the the all right so here here's what i'm going to try to do because uh with this idea, so we have this like kind of process relational metaphysics that's kind of grounding this plurality of ultimates, which mm. just for, to summarize, um, and at, at least in your in the book you name uh, the divine, you name creativity, and you name actual occasions, and kind mm. of show how um, all three of these things are are kind of um, interrelated. They 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 play with each other nicely. They. Um, I don't know if contingent is quite the right word, correct me, but they kind of, um, the three of them, they work together. Um, Let me address so, just
1: that. Yeah, go I'm, ahead, please. Go ahead to your question first. I'll make a note, to come back. Go on.
0: Okay. Well, I was just going to say, so I consider myself an aspiring mystic is how I would like to talk about it. And so I really appreciated your chapter on taking the mystics seriously. Um In fact, it reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, another gentleman named Daniel Daniel Dombrowski who wrote a book called Process Mysticism, which I really enjoyed. Um, But I think what was cool about it was it, and I'm going to try to do a Josh Patterson explanation, who I'm not a trained philosopher. I don't have a PhD, nothing like this. um, And you can try to correct me. But what I, I gleaned from this is that there are different mystical experiences throughout religious traditions not just christianity you know the religion that i grew up in and most comfortable with but also we have buddhists having mystical experiences or muslims or or jews or or hindus or whoever and what a kind of you know reductionistic um version of not not even a true pluralism would do is be like oh well, they're all just experiencing the same divine reality, and it just happens to be mine. Yeah. But with this kind of a, a deep religious pluralism and a plurality of ultimates, you can actually say, well, wait a minute. A Christian, for example, might be experiencing a very personal ultimate reality where they feel they have a, a personal relationship. The divine is nothing less than personal to steal language from Phil Clayton. And then right. maybe our Buddhist friends are having an, a, a mystical experience of ultimate reality, but it's not—it's not necessarily personal. So if we were to say that they're both just experiencing the same thing, that wouldn't be fair to to the traditions. We wouldn't be respecting right. them. We wouldn't be holding them for what they are. Um, but with the plurality of ultimates, we can say perhaps a Christian is experiencing uh something like the divine the divin divine within that yes. plurality of ultimates and a Buddhist is maybe interacting with what Whitehead calls creativity or something like that. So it opens this Make kind one. of Yeah. Does that did I do I, am I understanding <laughs> this idea correctly?
1: You hit the nail both nails on the head because we talking about Because <laughs> <Right two. on. laughs> they're cool. two nails. It's not the same, right? And yes that it does an actual kind of violence when you say oh well it's just the same thing. Um, it, it, if it's done in earnest, I do see it as a, as a form of kind of violence, in religious dialogue and violence and theology is you're sublimating this other tradition and, and not taking those mystics seriously and coming back and reporting, um, their religious experiences. And you're right. Chapter four is called taking these mystics seriously. And, and the, the, question people should have is, well, how do we make sense of this? Right. And it goes back to what is the relationship between these ultimates? As you mentioned, you know, are they contingently related or, or or whatnot? And I'm not sure exactly what you meant by that. But what I can say is when I the reason I use the term ultimates uh, and then religious ultimates, and I differentiate, I said there's there's metaphysical ultimates, and then we add these characterizations from religious narratives, and they we can call them religious ultimates. But an ultimate in the metaphysical or ontological um way of thinking is a thing in terms of which nothing Sorry, let me start that again. A, an ultimate is that thing which other things are explained are, are explained in terms of that thing, but cannot be explained in terms of anything else. Um, I, I should probably read that in my book where I say it more clearly. Uh, I'm, I'm used to writing more than talking, but like just it's worth repeating. It's it's a in terms of which other things are understood. It's not understandable in terms of other things. So um A personal deity, a personal absolute, can be a thing in terms of which other things are understood. We move, live, and breathe in as being a non-personal absolute creativity. The Buddhists call it Shunyata. Uh, the Taoists might call something like that Tao, or the Brahmins uh, call it Brahman. Is a is an undifferentiated absolute that can, uh, upon experience, um you can come away with that of, of having a a. Ex- of a pure bliss, light, consciousness that is a non dual experience. And they come back and they, there is no duality at all in this experience. And you completely lose yourself in it. There is no other God that or being which you have a relationship. Those are radically different experiences. And so by taking these mystics seriously um, and having this, this metaphysical uh, underpinning, you, you can take the mystics seriously and say, here's a map for making sense of how that can make sense. And the key word that you said is it's possible. It's not saying this is the answer. It's not saying this is the absolute end all be all explanation or how to make sense of it all. But rather, this is a possible explanation. There may be, others, right. We always have to even engage in this with intellectual humility to say, I don't have all the answers uh, and I still have a lot to learn. But here is one way to, that I that we can make sense of this moving forward and come away from it, respecting each other, not doing intellectual, religious violence to one another um, and and and. And, and that's that's vital especially in this world we're in today
0: yeah absolutely and I, I love the the intellectual humility that comes within that too which is something that you mentioned earlier um but just the and that that's one thing that's attractive to some process thinking for me is it's more invita- Invitational it's more like mm. hey maybe this is a thing right does it isn't doesn't Whitehead use the um uh metaphor of kind of like let's get on an airplane and it's going to kind of like take off and like we'll see what happens and then kind of re-land it
1: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah. it, it has this like uh i don't know it, it, it's inventational for example i i recently was interviewing uh, uh go to uh who is you know big in like the philosophy of mind type world um panpsychism kind of stuff and i said something about liking processed thinking because it has explanatory power and mm. he was like josh it doesn't explain anything it's neutral it's a framework to work you know a framework yes <laughs> to work out yeah. of
1: That's and he perfect. said that
0: in front of a group of freaking people and like i really appreciated it but it was kind of like a light bulb for me but yes that that possibility language uh, as you said I, I really like that um about it. it's an, it, an invitational here's perhaps a way that this could work and try it on see what happens and um I mean at least in my opinion when I try it on it seems to work <laughs> so I I'm I'm digging that and I think um the tri- the tricky thing for me though and I'm, I'm curious what you think about this this might derail us a little bit but I see so much value in this kind of process framework and in the kind of religious pluralism you're putting forth, based off this framework but where i get hung up is like process thinking is so notoriously difficult to kind of grasp and understand and if i want a truly like deep religious pluralism where people like stop killing each other because their religion is different um i don't know that i can convince everybody that process is the way to go you know what i mean Mm. Like, is Mm -hmm. there? I don't know. And so I I hope there's just a way like to continue speaking, even if we're not convincing people that this framework is the one to operate out of, um, that at least the idea is possible. Does that make sense?
1: It it does. You're right, Josh. And um, but what I what I think is when we look at it from our spot in history, it's a difficult radical change. When you zoom out, as one of my degrees was history, also, and I, I always believe that you can't make sense of these philosophical ideas if you don't understand the historical context, and you can't understand history unless you understand the ideas are thrown out of that time, right? So here we are in an age of great cosmopolitanism and globalization and all this stuff, and 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 um, this this intermixing, intermingling of cultures faster and intermingling ideas faster than ever conceivably possible before. We're, we're just at the birth of that. And so here we have a philosophy, we call a process philosophy, uh, from the Western perspective, that's only not even 100 years old, actually, that's no, just over 100 years old. Uh, but people didn't really start reading in the until the last 50 years. Um, and so it's going to be a generational change. You're right that, unfortunately, the language of process philosophy is notoriously difficult. And that's why I wrote chapter three, was to try to bring it, um, and I, I hate using the term bringing it down to the level of like the, the common man's understanding but you know everybody doesn't have time to go get a PhD just to understand what the hell Whitehead was talking about nor should they. Uh, it's up to people like me and, and my my colleagues and, and and who are academics is to to challenge ourselves to make that writing more clearly and so many uh philosophers have done that and you mentioned many of them that you've had on your show um who who you know they change it to say open or relational or whatever and, and explain it in language that makes more sense to to regular folk. Uh, and that's what I tried to do as a philosopher in that third chapter. But I do genuinely believe, you know, 200 years from now, Whitehead is going to be as, as revered in philosophical circles as Kant. I, I really do think that. Um, and and you know one of the one of my peculiar interest is, is and we I'd love to study the history of this, is Whitehead's relationship with, when he moved to Harvard um, later in his career, um, the chair of the Harvard department was Houston Wood. And he has done, he was that at that time, one of the um, great translations of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, an, an area that I teach as well and have done translation work in. And so much of uh, Whitehead's writing and thinking resonates i think with the what's the samkhya yoga tradition and i i just i imagine these guys having these conversations and and them you know getting ideas from each other whitehead especially getting some ideas from just casual conversations with his uh the chair of his department um and so with these intermingling of ideas we have creative development of new ways of understanding reality. And again, it's our language that gets in the way. And so the hardest part about, about process thought and process writing and reading Whitehead is he comes up with all these neologisms, which itself is a too complicated word for people. It, it means making up new words, because he has to. He has to make up new words to try to explain reality in a new way, because the words that we do have from the Greeks, uh, in particular, and, and from those all of those in the Western tradition who followed from them, has so much cultural baggage with it that we need to set them aside and come up with something new. And that that's going to take time and generations, frankly. So um, that's not a satisfactory answer, I'm sure, but I do see it that way.
0: No, it's, it's a very good answer. I I appreciate it. And I, I, so much respect the work of the people like yourself trying to do that. Cause I mean, I, I'm kind of bought in hook, line and sinker at this point. with some of the process thinking, and um, I see the the value in it. I see the potential that it has. I know for, and I mean, even experientially for me, much like yourself, it's kind of been the thing that has reined me in back to the, the tradition that I grew up in, which is is Christianity. Um, but also, it has given me such a genuine respect for because of you know the kind of work that you're doing it's given me such a genuine respect for these other religious traditions. And it's helped me make sense of people who have different religious traditions and experiences, but are, are offering these really beautiful um, mystical experiences or the, the faith tradition. I hate this language, but I think it makes you know people understand what I mean, like works for them. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to, there's a part of me that never really understood why like even even as a kid, when I was taught like, oh, we have to evangelize, you know, the Muslims in your school or something like that, I never understood why because it like seemed like what they had going on was like pretty good <laughs> for them. <laughs> and so I was confused why why I'd want to strip that away from them. So I think it's I think it's important and I'm I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm putting my hat in that ring, like I'm in school right now, like yeah. learning yeah. this kind of process relational stuff and uh, want to also try to help make it more popular, I guess.
1: Yeah. And you're <laughs> and doing amazing. You're doing, you're doing amazing work and you're, and I, I think it's a, a fair way to put it is you're, you're, you know, you're doing God's work by having this mm. discussion and like helping to bring these ideas to a wide audience. Uh, and it's, it's vital because. There's, there's so much academic writing and everything and frankly it's sad how little audience we have without um and now with with the internet and and, and things like this with people like you it helps us to get that out to people where it will make a difference uh, And so I can't thank you enough for that. I gotta say one thing I love about um Islam in that context you brought up is you know they have the the uh uh the the what's the right word? The admonition or they they have the – there's the saying It says you don't evangelize people of the book. The the Christians and Jews were people of the book, right? And you don't – you know, God – it's up to God to determine uh, how and who believes – I'm saying it wrong. I'm sorry. I'm butchering it. But it's – the variety is good. And if God wanted it otherwise, he would have it otherwise. And and these are people of the book and they're to be respected as such. And you don't – you don't necessarily try to evangelize them from their perspective.
0: Yeah, for sure. I took, um, so my undergrad was at, uh, what's now called Messiah university. It was just Messiah college at the time in uh, Pennsylvania. And part of my graduation requirement was to take a religion that was not Christianity. And so I took Mm. Islam and I loved that class. (laughs) uh it's to the point where i was calling my my grandmother after class you know each time and talking to her and you know telling her what i what i loved about it and she asked me she was like josh are you going to are like you're going to convert to islam like is that i was like no this is just such a beautiful tradition that i've been sold so many like lies about or something like that so i i'm with you in in that deep appreciation but i mean are you so i have a question that i want to ask you but i want to make sure are you okay on time i want to respect I'm- your
1: yeah, I'm all yours.
0: Okay. So I kind of like a pragmatic question and this is like comes out of the kind of the chapter you did with um kind of doing some of the comparative work. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'm not trying to to minimize that chapter because there's a lot there but I like I'm trying to think as a listener who's like okay, this stuff sounds cool. But I thought within Christianity we were told that we can't have any other gods before me, mm. right? And
1: mm-hmm. I think that's
0: something that you kind of get at within that that chapter on the comparative work. And so I'm curious, like say a student were to ask you that question, how might you um, interact with them or what, what might you point them to to kind of help them with that?
1: Hmm. Well, so in, in, co- in the context of chapter five, where I look at South uh, uh, tradition in particular, uh, what I what I do is I look at um, I interrogate these passages of Bhagavad Gita uh, in particular, where where they talk about what is the proper relationship for viewing other traditions. Uh, how do we understand these other traditions? Because in if you're re- for for those of your listeners who don't know that in the G- Bhagavad Gita. Uh, it's just it's this crazy story where God uh, comes down to Earth in the form of man and he talks to humanity and he tells them he reveals himself to them and he tells them hey you know this is what it's all really about and this is what you should do I mean crazy story right never heard that one before uh so that should sound familiar number one um but uh, the takeaway is is actually quite different than say in Exodus where thou shalt not have no other gods before me right uh and the takeaway is so I look at chapter 9, verse 23, I think it is in particular, where Krishna says to Arjuna, this is the interlocutor in, in, in the story. He says, look, you know, there's there's actually, let me find it in particular uh, in chapter 4. There, even those, I'll read one of the translations. Even those who are devotees of other gods and worship them full of faith, they worship me, actually. Um, though not not according to the right rules, or maybe they don't do it in the right way, or, you know, the the literary question that I examine is, what's the right way to interpret this passage? And there's ways to interpret this that are inclusivist, obviously, absolutism, I think, obviously, because you're saying, hey, um, these people who think they're worshipping this guy named Jesus, they're actually worshipping me, and my name's Krishna, but that's okay, I still accept their worship, uh, because they can't know everything, and I mean, what a loving response from if God was, you know, real and loving and caring, like, and he knew that we had, you know, problems with knowledge and ignorance and history, that sounds like a nice response and and it's, it's open and, and, and loving uh, and, and accepting. Uh, but there's other interpretations of that too. And, and so without giving it away, I explore how that tradition tries to answer that question. Um, and, and, you know, what I certainly wouldn't do and what I don't do when students come to me asking questions like this is I don't give them an answer. Again, I try to arm them with tools for trying to struggle with that on their own and make sense of it is is given what you know in your tradition and these are the characterizations of God and here is a, a, I I think, a more contemporary, rational way of making sense of religious traditions. What makes sense to you? Um, And, and, you know, play on it. And, And, you know, I think the, the tradition has um, mechanisms within its its worshipful and its theory of worship that you know the Holy Spirit speaks to you and through prayer and 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 helping you come to to see things uh, more clearly in a way that helps you bring about the kingdom of God and does this interpretation help you do that in a way as opposed to that one um, so I'm, I'm I might be some might be thinking I'm humming and hawing a bit. Uh, But I'm I'm really trying to leave it open without answering for for others, because that's a deeply personal question that they need to answer. But what I can do is help them understand other traditions and and, um, theories to try to make sense of their tradition as a true tradition, not just the true tradition. Right. Um, It's possible. But I think I think with education and exposure. People will be likely to come to a more open conclusion.
0: Yeah, I I really like how you brought in the the kingdom of God bit there. And maybe that's just that so like when I was still a pastor, that was the thing that I preached on the most, right? I was like, I was like a hardcore, like N.T. right Scott McKnight kind of um evangelical at the time. Hmm. And the kingdom of God was really big and important to me and i mean it still is i i maybe talk about it a little bit differently now but i think that's such an interesting way to think about it in like what <laughs> how can we interpret other traditions in such a way that um is more, is more faithful to that like kind of kingdom of god type language and i think minimizing them and trying to say like oh well they're just secretly the same thing is not doing that well <laughs> so yeah. i i appreciate i appreciate you bringing it in that way i, I um Yeah, I don't know. I like that. And I like to I mean, I even think too the kind of I don't know, I appreciate your your approach to teaching or interacting with students. I think asking questions um, is big. And I mean, within the kind of tradition that both of you and I have admitted that we come from, there was this dude called Jesus and homeboy, mostly all he did was ask questions, (laughs) even when people asked him questions. He maybe directly answered like what three or four of them and then just the rest of them just were like here's more questions. Like yeah. uh and I so I think there's wisdom in that and that there's uh invitation in that. And I I don't know, I keep coming back to that word, the kind of invitation present here.
1: Um yeah. well he's a pretty I, good role model.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, all right. So we've um I mean we've covered a lot of ground pretty quickly. And uh not super duper you know into the weeds too much, but is there anything that maybe you're like, oh geez, I can't believe Josh didn't ask me about this? Or like, mm-hmm. here's something I, I really would like listeners to kind of know about um in regards to this project.
1: Well, the the last chapter, um last formal chapter in chapter six, where I talk about an religious dialogue, I um i do some work there uh especially with regard to the former uh, pope ratzinger uh, or ratzinger the former pope benedict uh, the 16th. Um, May um rest in peace uh but when i wrote it at the time it was really the first english language um critique of his work he had just become pope and um i was working in philosophy of religion at the time for my dissertation and i was i was examining his work on um regarding many of these attempts to understand religious tradi- other religious traditions as relativism. And I, I gave a philosophical critique of that. And um, you know, I don't I don't pull punches as I try to treat them like gosper not as the Pope in this, you know, and and that's that's been I think that's been slightly controversial for some people. I'm fine with that. I'm comfortable with that. But I do come to I think a surprising conclusion within religious dialogue um without giving too much away. Um it it I do argue that you know you you in a sense have to assume a religious pluralism as the ground for having genuine and religious dialogue. And what I mean by that, actually I should let me rephrase that. Um for starters, you need to assume a pluralistic mindset. And again, it just goes back to intellectual humility that I don't have all the answers. Uh shocking, N- neither do you, and um but I also know that there is value and wisdom to be had in learning from others and other um, world religious traditions. And so in order to genuinely open myself up, I have to make myself vulnerable in ad- admitting that. And, and just that right there is something that people who I think are religiously dogmatic, they can't do that. Who People who are religious absolutists, they can't do that. Um, and I think um, what they end up, being stuck with is is a form of uh, maybe not even intentional, but evangelizing and, and and that we need to be careful about that if we're going to engage in genuine religious dialogue. Um, and and I think you have to make, I am basically saying you have to make perhaps an uncomfortable leap to a pluralistic position to even have that genuine religious dialogue. But I do personally and genuinely and as a scholar believe, that that's what true faith calls us to do is to open ourselves up to learning from others and um and being comfortable with that discomfort um and so my conclusion is actually a little radical at the end that says you know you, you do have to actually be a religious pluralist um, if you're really going to be a believer um because I, I, otherwise how do you make sense of that um so so that might be, a bit controversial at the end, and, and I'm fine with that. But I, I, you know, as any human being, I put my work out there to get responses and and to learn and have and to have, begin that dialogue. Uh, and so I invite responses from any and everyone um, to, to to get closer to what may resemble the truth. And so I ask people to do that, and I ask my colleagues in the field of philosophy, and religion, especially in that that kind of uh, the concluding chapter but the kind of what, what he called the thing at the end of the, the epilogue um to say we need more comparative scholars we need more comparative philosophers we need to take seriously the other philosophical traditions that are not from the ancient greeks in the west because they are they're real and they have deep genuine thoughts and perspectives on reality and epistemology and ethics and and um Finally, I think our society is, is coming to the realization that it's not just a equity and diversity inclusion thing, but it's like, no, these people have real value and, and they have something we should learn from. And and we have an opportunity to put these ancient thinkers from this tradition in the conversation with ancient thinkers from those traditions. And wow, we might come to some deeper insights. I don't know, call me radical, but um, I think that's necessary moving forward.
0: Yeah, no, I Yes, I, it reminds me of the concept of like unconditional love. And if I were to phrase it outside of, say, a this kind of like comparative religious um, conversation and were to give a metaphor that I think gets at the kind of radical conclusion you're pointing at. Um, I would want to say, like, say there's something like uh, I'm trying to think of a good example put into a relationship kind of perspective so um say there's some kind of disagreement between myself and my wife and i want to enter into this conversation in a way that is truly open um if mm-hmm. i come to it already with a conclusion in mind i'm like oh well obviously here you know my wife is crazy she's wrong whatever <laughs> um that's not that's not a grounds for a genuine conversation. But instead, if I come to the conversation with unconditional love and no expectations, no expectations that like she's going to agree with me or something like that and I'm open to the genuine possibility of difference of opinion or of being wrong or something like that, then that that's a more Uh, at least in my opinion, that's a more appropriate way to approach kind of a conversation with my wife in disagreement is one where I'm, I'm open. The unconditional love is there. I'm open to being wrong. I don't have expectations on how the conversation is going to end. And so in a similar way, I think if we can approach in a religious dialogue in the same way, as you're saying, like not with the expectation of conversion not with the expectation of being the only one that's right, but rather this kind of openness, a humility to learning, and um yeah. I, th- I mean, I think I don't see how else you would do it. <laughs> so I, I like your radicalism. I would think that's a great, I'm, I'm that's a great <laughs> metaphor. Oh,
1: no, thank you. And I, that's a wonderful metaphor for people. You know, it's the mature response, the thoughtful response, the loving response. That's um not seeking any particular outcome other than love at the end you begin with it and you end with it and i think if you if you encounter and engage the universe in that way and and the the spiritual links to central truths that may be there to be uncovered in this world with thoughtfulness humility maturity and love um, you may be surprised at what you find um you may be surprised to find in places where you didn't think you'd see it but i mean so much of the scriptures is about that so much so much of that we take away from the religious life is finding joy and happiness and love in unexpected places. And, and, and I think the real hope for me is that people who have been closed off to finding that those truths and loves and others and other traditions may be inspired to, to let down their guard a bit and, and, and find that, allow that into their life. Doesn't mean they have to switch religions or anything like that. It's just God speaks to us in many different ways, in many different avenues, through many different traditions, perhaps. And there's other genuine religious ultimates that are worthy of discovery as well.
0: Yeah, I all right. I wanna I want to comment on that real quick because that that seems so important to me. Like just the recognition that you know, all right. So just personally. Mm -hmm. with my whole like the whole deconstruction blah 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 thing whatever um i've experienced on more than one occasion what within the christian tradition has been called like a dark night of the soul kind of thing and i have found um solstice during those times in different traditions such as buddhism i mean to the extent where like i have this this is sitting on my desk alongside of like a bunch of other iconography and and statues um so listeners it's a it's a a buddha statue (laughs) um and i want to be able to kind of come to this place where i can recognize like um and maybe this isn't for everybody but this has been helpful for me recently is that i can still love and embrace the tradition that i came from i can ditch all the stuff that was not helpful that was toxic that was painful etc um and try to inherit take what what is good and beautiful and true within my tradition but then also recognize like oh well what i was finding within the buddhist tradition when you know tiknot han became my kind of uh you know the person that i looked up to for a hot second and was was where i was going to find answers um i can still take and embrace that tradition as something that is also good and beautiful and true without having mm-hmm. to One, say, okay, well, my Christian tradition is now bullshit. Only Buddhism is true. Or saying, okay, well, I have Christianity and I'm just going to like put Buddhism into it somehow. But I can actually now have this way to hold both of them as good and beautiful and true. And be able to celebrate uh, with people within the Christian tradition. And also celebrate my friends who find themselves within the Buddhist tradition. And not have this kind of like... Tension and fighting and head butting, but rather, I, I don't know, more open and beautiful posture. So, I,
1: I think that's beautiful, Josh, and I'm, I'm glad you share that because well, the struggle that that so many of us have who might adopt that is the the reactionary response. I think from uh, say religious elders or scholars who would say, "Well, that is relativism. That is," or as the, from the Catholic tradition, you can't be a cafeteria Catholic. They love using that term, right? Pick and choose. Well, I, I mean, since we're acknowledging things like Buddhism, I took refuge uh, with the Buddha when I was in India um, 20 years ago, actually. I, I lived and taught in the Buddhist monastery. I taught Buddhist philosophy, and at the end of it, I, I took refuge. Uh, but I don't see it in any way, shape, or form as abandoning in my, my Catholic upbringing. And so how do we make sense of this? And it brings us back to, well, we now have a theory that helps us make sense of, how that make how that can logically make sense how that can spiritually make sense without having to just take the admonition that you're just a relativist and you're just going off whatever this gut feeling and you know the truthiness is is um problematic and bullshit. And it's, no it's not actually there is a metaphysical theories to help us make sense of holding two things in two different hands um and, and you know, without going over the whole interview again that we did, but that brings us back to the beginning of why this is important. Um, because otherwise, I think people are stranded without there's they've been, I I believe, stranded too long by theologians, stranded too long by philosophers of religion, who really, for the most part in the West are just Christian philosophers. It's philosophies of Christianity, but as a philosopher of religion who studied multiple traditions. I can say, hey, no, no, here's an explanation that can arm you with um, or give you the armor to protect you from these accusations of relativism. That that's not um fair response, and it's not treating believers with the dignity and respect that their faith has brought them to this position. And, and um, you know, the, uh, the theory is catching up to that. And this is part of what the whole point of my book is.
0: well Matt this has been such a fun conversation that I've been really looking forward to for a long time thank you so much for um making time and being willing to be flexible with your schedule to make this happen uh you know thank you much. for your work and for publishing it <laughs> I appreciate it um it's been deeply seriously deeply helpful for me um and I'm excited to you know you you kind of talk about in the the conclusion of of your book the um that there's like other work that you hope to kind of come out of this that, you know, more, more grounds to be explored. Um, and I'm excited yeah. about that. You know, that's um, I'm excited to see where you go with things. Uh, but also like, this is the kind of, this is what I'm currently drawn to the most. This feels really important to me. Um, and hopefully uh, within my own work and study, I can offer something into the conversation. Oh,
1: I welcome <laughs> so it. I, like, I- Thank you so much uh, from the bottom of my heart for this opportunity. Uh, and thank you to your listeners uh, as, as well. And I encourage any and all of them to reach out and contact me. I don't, um, if it's appropriate, I'd share a, a code. I have a coupon code for the book. Um, uh, if you, if you order it through Roman.com, uh, which is the publisher, there's a 30% off code. and It's L X F A N D F 30. And it's 30% off. And, Um, You know, these academic uh, books tend to be a little more expensive than people expect, but I hope it's um, something people are interested in getting and then responding. they can email me anytime at my uh, mlopresti at hpu.edu, where I teach here in Hawaii. That's mlopresti at hpu.edu. And thank you. Namaste and aloha.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I will I will put that information in the show notes as well. So listeners have ease of access. Um, yeah, thank you again so much. And listeners, thanks for hanging out today. Hopefully you found this episode as fun as I did. <laughs> uh, and as always, guys, go in peace.